We'll be back in the book of Genesis, chapter number 2 this evening. Genesis chapter number 2. We didn't finish uh, the worksheet last week, and so we are coming back to it. And I went ahead and filled in the blanks that we covered last week. But we will take and re, uh, just go over those points very quickly. And then once we cover those, we'll move on into some more uh, on the worksheet. I do believe, though, uh, that we will be covering um, marriage, God's establishment of uh, marriage. We'll be covering that next week. I don't believe we're going to get to that this week. Uh, so we're just stretching this on out. But I will give you the points for the end of it because I'll have you a different worksheet next week as we look at this thing of marriage. It just, you see, whenever I, whenever I extend a lesson, then I further develop that lesson. You see, that's what happens. And so uh, when we get to the marriage, I'll have you another worksheet with some more points on that. Uh, but tonight we will be uh, looking at uh, the garden and the establishment of duty. But first, we'll just go over uh, what we looked at last week. So we looked at last week the details of the finished creation, starting there in verse number 4. Uh, we looked at the establishment of the ecosystem. Uh, we see how that God uh, established the solar system. Uh, he uh, created a mature creation. We looked at how that mature creation uh, enabled many of the aspects of our uh, earth to work instantly, which is in opposition to evolution that said that it took uh, millions of years. Uh, we looked at evaporation and condensation. We see how that God took the solar system, the mature creation, the evaporation and condensation, and put all this in place right at the beginning to establish a healthy earth. And then we went on and we looked at the establishment of man. And uh, there at the establishment of man, of course, we looked at his creation. And in looking at the creation of man, and these weren't on your worksheet, and I'd said you may want to write them on the side, uh, we saw there uh, his designer, uh, that God designed man and was hands-on in forming man. We saw his components, uh, that man was made of the dust of the ground, um, and how that God took... Uh, the components of the dust and formed a man. Then we saw his source of life. We see how that God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. And then the last thing we looked at last week uh, was uh, his companion. And we looked at how God created woman of the rib of man and how the, the union that God made there completes both the man and the woman, and how that God created man and woman in such a way uh, that they complemented one another and that that is the union that God intended. And, of course, we'll look at that more in depth when we get to the establishment of the marriage. But this week, uh, we want to look at the second thing about the establishment of man, which is his garden. So we'll start there, we'll finish that up, and then we'll move on into the establishment of duty. But this evening we want to look at the establish, the second part of the establishment of man, which is his garden. So look with me, Genesis chapter number 2 and verse uh, number 8, and we'll read down through verse number 14. The Bible says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it, which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and the onyx stone. 
The name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hadekel. That is it which goeth towards the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. So here we see a description of the garden, uh, the Garden of Eden, the garden that God created to place man into. Uh, although the entire creation was for the benefit of man, everything that God created was for the benefit of man, uh, the Garden of Eden had been specifically designed to be the home of Adam and Eve. This was the place uh, that God uh, designed to place them in. It says he, he planted a garden for the purpose of Adam and Eve living there. It was especially and perfectly designed, I believe, as the base from which mankind was to go Go forth and subdue uh, all of the earth. And so in verse 8 to 14, uh, we read that description. And as we read that description, we recognize uh, that the Garden of Eden was no ordinary place. Uh, it was completely different from anything that you and I have ever seen uh, or experienced here on this earth. And now uh, there are a lot of places here on earth where you can go where there are some talented gardeners who have uh, planted beautiful gardens. And you can look at the, the plants and the flowers and the things that they've created the vines and the shrubs and, and just be uh, breathtaking at the beauty. But there is nothing that exists today that compares to the garden that God created uh, there in the Garden of Eden. There are several things concerning the garden that I want us to consider this evening. First of all, I want us to consider the purpose the purpose of the garden. As we've already stated, uh, the garden was to be, be the beginning home of of mankind. It was specifically prepared by God to meet the needs and provide enjoyment for man. It was prepared by God that man would have his needs met and also would provide man with a means of enjoyment. Do you know that God intends for us to enjoy the life that we live here on earth? I have met some folks who erroneously thought that the Christian life was to be a life that had no laughter, no smiles, was completely somber. God never intended that. You read the Word of God, you will find throughout the Word of God that one thing He promises His children is joy. God wants us to enjoy the life that we live here. And when He created the garden, not only did He create a place that would meet the physical needs of man, he created a place that man would enjoy. You can get yourself admitted to the county jail and have your needs met, but you don't enjoy being there. Whenever the Lord created the garden, He made a place that man could both have his needs met and enjoy. So I see a couple of things that He did uh, to meet the man's need. First, we see the provision of the garden. In verse 9, we see that provision was made both for the physical and mental nourishment of man. Catch what it says here in verse number 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. When God created the garden, He made it first of all that it would be pleasant to the sight. Uh, it would be beautiful. It would be pleasing. It would be something that man could enjoy mentally. It would be a place that he enjoyed being. And even today, uh, that we have no problem seeing the beauty that God put all throughout His creation. I mean, it's just a beautiful world that God created. And so first of all, every tree was to be pleasant to the sight, but then also every tree 
was good for food. So God provided both uh, mental and physical nourishment for man. He met his need for enjoyment as well as met his need for physical sustainment. Now later on we're going to look at how the devil used uh, the visual attractiveness of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as part of the way that he tempted Eve to take of the fruit. And the Bible says that the devil pointed out or that Eve noticed that it was pleasant to the eye, that it was appealing to look at. The devil used that visual attractiveness to lure Eve into disobeying God. And sometimes uh, we will get this idea, especially if you see people who paint pictures of the Garden of Eden. The most beautiful tree in all the garden is the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But I really think that's an incorrect depiction of the garden. Because the Bible says here in verse number 9 that every tree was pleasant to the eye. Everything in the garden was pleasing to look at. The, God, the tree of knowledge and good and evil wasn't any prettier than anything else there. But the devil for centuries has had this trick. We say that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. He's always had this trick where he makes what you don't have seem as if it is better than what you do have. But oftentimes, whenever you get there, you will find out that what you did have was far better than what he was presenting. We see here uh, that the Bible tells us that every tree in the garden was pleasant to the eye. You know what? In planting the garden, God supplied sufficient means to satisfy both the physical and mental desires of man. There was nothing that man needed that God had not provided in the garden. The world would like us to think that there was something on the tree of knowledge and good and evil that God had not provided man. Maybe it was prettier. Maybe it had something that, that they needed or wanted, but that is not so. God provided everything that man needed, both for mental and physical satisfaction in the garden. Um, but then we see uh, in verse number 10 that God further provided for man by supplying a means of refreshment. Uh, both for man and for the sustenance of the garden. In verse number 10 it says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. In addition to providing the water needed to sustain the life of both the garden and Adam and Eve, we see that this river marked the location of the garden. And so we see here that God supplied man's uh, food uh, through the trees. He supplied his need for enjoyment through the beauty of the garden. He also supplied uh, water uh, for man's nourishment and to nourish the garden. Uh, but he also marked the physical location of the garden. So uh, next thing I want to look at real quickly is the place of the garden, the place of the garden. Look here at verse number 10. It says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah. Drop down to verse 13. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is that which compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hadekel. And that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is 
Euphrates. Now, much speculation has taken place uh, over the location of the garden. You just go home, get on your computer and type in, where is the Garden of Eden? And you will be amazed uh, at the speculation, at the locations that people say, this is it. We have found it. This is the place. Much speculation has taken place over the location of the garden. And and some folks definitely claim that they know exactly uh, where the garden is. So we ask ourselves, where is the garden. Now the Bible does give some clear indication as to some geographic markers. It lists four rivers. It lists definite countries. um, But none of these rivers or locations exist today as they're described here in Genesis chapter number 2. Now this has led to several theories concerning the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you've heard some of these. Uh, I've definitely heard a couple of these my whole life. Uh, uh, some folks will say that the garden never really existed, but was just a mythical place. And they base that on the fact that this geographic location doesn't exist. So the Garden of Eden must have never existed, but it was mythical uh, or it was, uh, it was symbolic, but it wasn't an actual place. And uh, there are uh, theologians who will actually teach that the Garden of Eden never, ever actually existed based on the fact that we can't find this geographic location. Uh, others have taught that the garden was removed by God after the fall. Now this is taught pretty regularly, that after the fall, after man was taken out of the garden, that God physically removed the Garden of Eden from the earth and that it's no longer here. He took it away. It it is no longer here. can't be found because God took it away. And there's plenty of other theories about the Garden of Eden. But I believe that the Bible gives us a clear description to a literal physical location. And I also believe the Bible gives us a clear explanation as to why that physical location uh, can't be found today. In verse number 8, we're given a direction. If you look in verse number 8 of chapter number 2, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward. If it were a mythical place, we wouldn't have this definite direction. Uh, So the Lord gives us a direction. In verses 11 to 14, we're given the names of four rivers, Pison, Gihon, Hadekel, and Euphrates. Also are given the names of three locations, Havilah, Ethiopia, and Assyria. Now if you read the description of Havilah, I believe that's a good place to go. I'm telling you what, they got gold, they got onyx, they got bedellium. That was a good place, Havilah was. Uh, But we have three physical locations, four physical rivers. We have a direction eastward. It's very clear to see that Eden was an actual physical place located here on this planet. It was a real physical garden that God created. But there are some problems with the description. There is nowhere on earth, nowhere on this planet, where four major rivers develop from a single head. That doesn't exist on this planet. You can look anywhere you want. There's nowhere that four major rivers develop from one head. Um, Of the rivers named, Pison, Gihon, Hadeco, and Euphrates, only two are thought to be confirmed today. Uh, We uh, have Hadeco, which most everyone agree is the Tigris River, Uh, and then we have the Euphrates, which is a river that still exists today. Uh, which if this are true, that these are the two rivers that is being spoken of in Genesis chapter number 2, it would place the Garden of Eden somewhere in the Middle East. But there are no other rivers close enough to have been Pison and Gihon. Now we can understand that they could have changed their name 
but there's no other two rivers close enough that could have ever originated from the same head, uh, not to mention that the Tigris and the Euphrates are too far apart to have originated at the same place. Uh, so uh, although we do have two of the rivers that are mentioned in Genesis chapter number 2, Genesis mentions four rivers that came from the same source. So even the Tigris and the Euphrates, as we know them today, don't fit the description. However, because we do have these two names, most Bible scholars... Uh, I say most, some Bible scholars will place the Garden of Eden in the Middle East. They'll say it has to be somewhere in the Middle East. We just don't know where, uh, but the two rivers are there, so it has to have been somewhere in the Middle East. And it could have been in the Middle East, but, um, but although it could have been there, there is nothing that allows us to confidently state that the Garden of Eden was in the Middle East. There is, there is no way that we can confidently, based on the two rivers, say this is where it had to be. Doesn't matter how hard people try, there's no connection of these rivers. They don't connect, so it doesn't fit the description in Genesis chapter number 2. So if we believe that the Garden of Eden was a real physical place, then how do we explain its existence when there is no geographic relevance to what's described in the Word of God. It begins to make us think that perhaps God removed it or something like that. But I believe all this is easily answered when we consider Noah's flood. And sometimes I'm amazed at Bible scholars who apparently just don't read the whole Bible. Because <laughs> sure, if you stop in Genesis chapter number 2, this is confusing. But if you just read a few more chapters, it becomes very evident why we can't find this geographic description anywhere on earth. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 6 that the world was entirely destroyed by the flood, which we know. In 2 Peter 3, 6, the Bible says, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The entire globe was destroyed by the flood. We also know that after the flood, the earth's surface was covered with sedimentary strata, sometimes thousands of feet deep after the flood. So whenever you take and you completely destroy the surface area of the earth and then you allow the waters to recede and you rush in thousands of feet of sedimentary strata, everything that existed before the flood is different. Everything that was there before is now completely different. We also know that even a small localized flood can change the course of a river. Uh, Pastor Kent and I were talking about uh, St. Mary's uh, Falls and uh, he was saying he'd never hiked all the way up to the falls and I said, well, when I first moved here, I said, I hadn't lived here very long at all, and I, I hiked up to the falls. I said, there was a real nice trail, went all the way to the falls. It was really easy to hike up there. I said, but just a few years after that, a flood came through, and there's not been a good trail since. <laughs> the river changed where it was at, and, and it's completely different now. Uh, so a, a localized flood can completely relocate where water flows and where, where it travels through. Uh, so we know that rivers can change where they're at. Uh, and this was a catastrophic global flood that could have completely annihilated a riverbed and opened up a completely different riverbed somewhere else. Uh, it's very likely that the rivers that existed before the flood don't even exist at all, period. Completely gone, 
another stream of water established somewhere else. You say, but now hang on, Pastor John. What about the two rivers that we still have named that, the, the two names that match? Well, maybe I'm wrong and maybe this is too simple. But you see, the Bible doesn't tell us where Noah started out when he got in the ark. We, we don't know where Noah was at. We just know that he got in the ark, the flood came, Noah bobbed around this globe for 40 days, and then the ark set back down. But there was a country Noah was familiar with. And in that country, there were four rivers, Pison, Gihon, Hadakel, and Euphrates. And Noah sat back down, and they came back out, and they began to reestablish themselves on the earth, and they found a river. And the boy said, Dad, what river is this? He's like, son, I don't have any idea. I don't even know where we're at. Let's call it Euphrates. That was one of the rivers we had before the flood. You say, Pastor John, that's way too easy. <laughs> we still do it today. Would you believe there is another Marlbrook Baptist Church in the world? I mean, we name things the same thing. There's a Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. That's not where Jesus was born. <laughs> we use the same names over and over and over. And to me, it makes perfect sense that after the flood, Noah would have named things after what he knew before the flood. Whether or not the Garden of Eden is in the Middle East, I have no idea. But I don't think the fact that there's a Tigris River and a Euphrates River determines that the Garden of Eden was in the Middle East at all. Noah bobbed around for quite a while all over this globe. He could have started anywhere, and wherever he started from was geographically completely 100% changed. We know that God did not uh, take away, uh, he didn't take away the garden immediately after Adam was kicked out because the Bible says, and we'll look at this more in a minute, that he placed an angel to guard so that man would not come back in. So the garden stayed, I believe, until the flood. So whenever you see folks given confident, I believe this is where the Garden of Eden is, I'm sorry to tell them, but we have no clue. It could have been anywhere on this planet. Now, I know that the Lord is partial to, to, to Jerusalem and that area, so maybe it started over there, but I think it started in the Shenandoah Valley. You know, there's no prettier place in the world than the Shenandoah Valley. But anyway, the Garden of Eden could have been anywhere. The flood completely changed the geographic nature of the earth, and we don't know where it was, uh, but we know that it did exist. And so uh, just a few thoughts about the garden. Now, secondly, we want to, uh, after we look at man's creation, we look at his garden, we look, move into verse 15 down through verse number 19 where we see the establishment of duty, the establishment of duty. In Genesis 2, verse 15, the Bible says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name 
thereof. There's two things that I see here in this passage concerning the duty of man after his creation. First, I see that God gave to man a responsibility. In verse 15 and verse number 19, we see man's responsibility. And there are two parts to this responsibility. In verse number 15, we see a continual or a daily responsibility. There in verse 15, it said, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Uh, as Melissa and I were leaving the house, she pointed at a flower pot that she has outside the porch uh, just a little bit ago, and she said, why are my flowers not coming up, whatever type of flowers she has in there? And I said, well, maybe, uh, you know, if you used to clean the leaves out of your flower pot and aerate it a little bit, it might help. And she's like, no, it's just supposed to come up. And I said, no, in a perfect garden, Adam and Eve still had to dress it and keep it, you know. You, gotta, you still got to help these things along a little bit. Uh, we see here that Adam was given a continual or a daily responsibility. And in verse number 19, we see that he was given a specific or could we say a particular responsibility. In verse number 19, God gives to Adam the responsibility of naming the animals. So we see two different types of responsibility, daily responsibility and particular or specific responsibility. Now what do we learn from this? I believe there is a picture here that we can apply to ourselves. I believe in this uh, we see a description in God's, what God required of Adam in a perfect garden is a picture of what God requires of us in our responsibility to Him. I believe that in our daily life there will be both daily maintenance responsibilities as Christians, and there will also be bigger specific uh, responsibilities. The Word of God teaches us all through the Word of God that we are to maintain a daily relationship and fellowship with God. This is something that we are to do. It's something we are to work on. Uh, boy, the message Brother Tim brought last night about fellowship and uh, how that we're to maintain that fellowship with God. Uh, God has said all through His Word, this is something you are supposed to do. You're supposed to keep your sin confessed. You're supposed to keep your, your heart right with God. You're supposed to stay in my word. You're supposed to, uh, you know, spend time in prayer to keep a daily relationship. This is the daily responsibility of Christians. But there's also bigger, more specific or particular responsibility. Sometimes there'll be a single job that needs done that God wants you to do. Sometimes there'll be a calling, such as He has called me to pastor the church. This is a bigger, more particular, specific calling God has given us. But I believe every Christian will have as their responsibility as a child of God both daily maintenance and bigger specific maintenance, just as God gave to Adam in the garden. We see here that in giving this to Adam, he was creating a bigger picture that you and I could learn from. We see that it was a perfect garden, but despite the fact that it was perfect, man had responsibility. Sometimes we get the idea that all that is required is salvation. We've even made the statement, well, as long as they're saved. No, not as long as they're saved. You see, even in a perfect garden, God did not want His creation setting idle. God has always wanted His creation to be people that had purpose, that was busy, that was doing things. And so this picture right here, Adam and Eve are in a perfect garden that should have been able to self-sustain 
And yet God said, there are things that I want you to be busy doing. And so those who say, well, as long as I'm saved, it doesn't matter if I go to church. It doesn't matter if I read my Bible. No, no, no. God says, you have a daily responsibility and you have a specific responsibility if you have believed in me. So we see man's responsibility. But then in addition to man's responsibility, in verses 16 and 17, we see man's requirements. Not only did God give to man a responsibility, but God gave to man some requirements. And in verse number 16, the Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Here we have the institution of of the law of God. We have the establishment of right and wrong. We have the ability of man. It is now possible for man to choose to love God or to pursue his own desires. When God created man, God created man to have a free will. He created man to be able to decide whether he would love God or reject God. And in order for man to choose, there had to be an opposite choice. If God had created a world where there was no other choice, then man would have not been able to choose whether or not he would love God. Many people say, well, that was unfair. That was trickery for God to put the tree of knowledge and good and evil in the garden. I mean, why would he do that to man? No, it would have been more unfair if he hadn't put the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Because without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Man didn't have a choice. And God said, I want to give to man a choice. I want to be fair. I want to allow man to choose. Will he follow me or will he follow himself? And also God was revealing to Adam and to all of mankind man's inability to live righteously without God. And so he placed a tree in the garden and by doing so, he made the point that man isn't forced to love God. Man is able to choose whether or not he will love God. Now, before God established the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, if you remember, he made sure that all of man's needs were met. There was nothing that the tree of knowledge and good and evil offered that man needed. Man had the capability to fully enjoy every aspect of his life without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know that is so true even today. God gives to man everything that man needs to have an enjoyable, successful life. There is nothing the world offers. And it would do us so good if we could learn this for real. There is nothing the world offers that we need to enjoy life. Now there's many things that are available that are not morally wrong. But there's nothing that the world offers, especially those things that are morally wrong, that we need to enjoy life. God gives us everything that we need. And in the garden, He had met every need that Adam and Eve had. Man was not lacking in any way. The only thing that would drive man to take of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil would be his own desire and his personal decision to reject God in pursuit of his selfish desires. That is the only thing that would lead him to take of the tree. God did not force man to sin. As a matter of fact, he gave man every reason not to sin. 
But man still made the choice to ignore God, ignore what God had said in order to satisfy his own desires. And as a result, he found himself condemned because of his choices. Now we spent this whole uh, month of March uh, looking at the provision that God made to give to man a second chance. And boy, I tell you what, I praise God that once we recognized our inability to live righteously, God said, but I have made a way. And boy, I tell you what, I praise the Lord that he made that way. We see here when looking at Adam that when man is left to himself, man will ultimately sin. During dinner tonight, Kel asked, she said, Dad, but what if Adam hadn't sinned? I said, that's a big what if. But the truth of the matter is, Adam would have sinned. Adam was human, and humans cannot in and of themselves live righteously. We must have God. Therefore, God knew Adam would sin. That's why from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth, a plan of redemption was already in place. God didn't put Adam into the world and say, all right, now let's just hope he does good. No, God knew what he would do. And God already put the plan of redemption in place so that now that man realized, I can't do this on my own, there was a Savior waiting and ready to love him Anyway, I tell you what, it just stirs me up inside when I think about all this. But we see here, but praise the Lord, once we sin, once we sin and realize our sinfulness, we have a Savior ready to forgive and restore our relationship with, with Him. There's a couple of things I want to point out about the tree as we finish up, about the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Some have... Uh, uh, have attempted to, des to describe the tree of the knowledge and good and evil uh, allegorically. Uh, in other words, they've tried to say that it didn't really exist, that it was symbolic, that there wasn't a physical tree, that by eating of the fruit of the tree you would gain knowledge and that would cause death, that, that the tree didn't really do that, that this was just symbolic. It wasn't a, a real uh, result from the tree. But I want to present to you this evening that I believe that the Bible teaches that both the tree of knowledge and good and evil as well as the tree of life were both actual physical trees with actual physical fruit that I believe was capable of doing what God said they would do. And I'm going to give you some reasons why I believe that. And I know we're getting a little late here, but I'll, I'll try to hurry for you. We know according to Genesis 3.24 that after man was thrown out of the garden, there was an angel which guarded the garden, as we talked about a minute ago, to prevent man from entering and eating of the tree of life. I believe that in and of itself proves that the tree of life was an actual tree and that eating of the fruit would benefit man. Just the fact that an angel was put there to guard it says this is a real tree. If you eat of it, you will benefit from it. We also know according to the book of Revelation, that the tree of life will exist in heaven and that we will be free to eat of it. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of fun things to do in heaven, and when I get there, I'm going to be so overwhelmed, I'm going to forget everything I planned while I was here on earth. But one of the first things I plan on doing is going and getting me a piece of that fruit because it's going to have to be the best fruit you ever bit into in your life. And so I'm looking forward to uh, break, getting some fruit off that tree of life and eating that and enjoying that. Uh, you say, Pastor John, heaven's not going to be like that. Well, I'm afraid 
that you're the one that's wrong and I'm the one that's right. I believe heaven's going to be an enjoyable place uh, where we are going to enjoy being there, enjoy life like we have never enjoyed it before. Those pictures of you sitting on a cloud playing a harp, I mean, if you're a mus musical person and you like the harp, that might be you, but I don't think all of us are going to be floating on clouds playing harps. I don't believe that's what heaven is all about. Um, but I believe that the tree of life was an actual physical tree uh, because uh, the Bible says that it will exist in heaven and we will be be allowed to eat of its fruit. So the question is asked, if these were physical trees with physical fruit, how were they able to extend or end life and how would they impart the knowledge of good and evil? And again, maybe I'm too simple-minded, but I sometimes think theologians way overthink this stuff. Because to me, it's just simple answers. So if my answers are too simple for you, I'm sorry. I'm just a simple guy, and I just think things through simply. But I, I want to look here at some things that I believe shows us that this is very, very possible. First, it is no secret that there are some foods that are good for us and some foods that are bad for us. This is no secret. You go to any doctor. And the first thing the doctor's going to tell you is what to eat and what not to eat. We all know that a bowl of blueberries is better and healthier and in essence will extend your life more than a Milky Way. Now, we might like Milky Ways better than we like blueberries, but there are some foods that are better than others. We also know that the person who avoids sugars and avoids these type of things and only eats natural foods most of the time will have a longer life unless, of course, a tragedy or something like that. Just generally speaking, they will have a longer life, a healthier life, a stronger life than the person who always eats at McDonald's and always is eating candy bars and drinking Mountain Dews. This guy, you know, He's going to have repercussions from this, you know. This is common knowledge. Like, like I said, sometimes I think things through too simply, but it's pretty obvious that there are food, some foods that are better for you than other foods. And so with that being said, we also understand that foods have been proven. There are some foods that have been proven to extend life, while there's other foods that have been proven to shorten life. This is, this is no secret. Therefore, I don't believe it's a stretch at all to believe that the tree of life could have possessed in its fruit certain vitamins, minerals, or chemicals that could have indefinitely lengthened the health, vitality, and longevity of man. I don't think that's a stretch at all. Matter of fact, scientists still cannot give you a definite answer as to what causes death. That, I mean, they can say, well, you had a heart attack and this and this, or you know. But to to look at death in and of itself, the reason that you know after we get to a certain age, it's, your life tends to be over. They can't explain why that happens. Because of that, I don't believe it's a stretch at all to believe that there could have been vitamins, minerals, chemicals available in the fruit of the tree of life that would have very much uh, helped the health of mankind. I believe that it's very possible uh, that that could have been the case. In the same manner, I do not believe it's impossible that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil could have possessed in its fruit substances that could have begun a degeneration of man's physical body. 
You say, well, I, I don't know, Pastor John. Well, just when they get ripe, go eat you a handful of pokeberries and then come tell me if there's not fruits that can affect your health. Uh, you're going to feel rough after you eat that handful of pokeberries. I believe it's very possible in the tree of knowledge and good and evil that there could have very likely been minerals or chemicals in the fruit that could affect man's body even to the point of affecting the genetics of man's makeup. God said... If you eat that fruit, you'll die. Could it be possible that God just, when Adam ate the fruit, that God uh, in his ability as creator changed the genetics of man? Definitely that is possible. And, and, and that's very reasonable to think that God did that. But I also don't think it's a stretch for God to have created the fruit in such a way that eating the fruit would have an immediate repercussion from the fruit itself, which is a picture of how sin works today. There are many, many sins that God doesn't necessarily have to personally chasten you for the sin. The, the result of the sin by itself will destroy you. And so there could have very easily been something in the fruit of itself that affected the genetics of man. You say, okay, so if we follow that, uh, that the fruit could have, uh, the, of the tree of life could have benefited man, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil could have uh, deteriorated man, what about the knowledge of good and evil? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Now, often, matter of fact, most of the time, we like to put the knowledge of good and evil in a mystical realm, as if... There was some sort of some sort of knowledge that they would gain, some sort of uh, a superior understanding that they would gain. But remember, that is what the devil said. God said about the tree that it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He never said, God never said that if you eat of it, you will gain a superior understanding. God just said this is the name of the tree. The devil said if you eat of it, you'll gain a superior understanding. That, that's what the devil said. And I don't know if you've been around the devil much, but he tends to lie. Matter of fact, the Bible says he's the father of lies. This is what he's good at. So the fact that the devil is the one that said it'll give you a superior understanding makes me think that that's never what God intended. You say, well, well what, do we, what do we see here? Well, I believe that there was something not necessarily that the tree would give to man, but something man would experience when he took of the tree. Let me explain. At the end of creation, God declared everything that he had made as very good. That makes me think that there was nothing evil in the tree itself. That there was no evil component because God said everything is good. Um, but I do believe that when Adam and Eve took of the fruit, they disobeyed God. You, what is evil? Evil is the result of disobeying the law of God. Up until this point, all Adam and Eve knew was good. 
The Bible said everything was very good. In the cool of the evening, Adam and Eve talked with God and had a perfect relationship with God. This was very good. Now, when the devil sold his bill of goods to them, he said, you're going to learn, you're going to get superior understanding about good and evil. But see, Adam and Eve already understood good. They had experienced good far more than any of us have ever experienced good. They knew what good was. Something Adam and Eve had never experienced was the guilt and the shame and the remorse and the agony and the separation of their relationship with God that results from evil. God said, this is the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. Don't eat it. That's my law. And when you eat it, you will have broken my law. And when you break my law, you're going to experience the repercussion of evil. Now the devil sold it as this, you're going to get this superior understanding and all of a sudden you will have a, a knowledge like God does about good and evil. But what was truly going to happen is yes, now they would know about evil. They'd know about evil because they had experienced evil. And now they felt the guilt and the shame and the remorse that comes whenever you disobey God. We see that until this point, can you imagine this? I, I can't remember a time, I, I guess it existed when I was an infant, but I can't remember a time when I didn't know what guilt felt like. can't remember a time when I didn't know what shame felt like. Can you imagine Adam and Eve, they, they had no idea what that felt like. No idea what it was like for, to, to feel that shame in their heart. But they took of the fruit and they were flooded with this knowledge of evil. Flooded with it. Satan convinced them that they would gain superior understanding through eating the fruit, but what they truly gained was knowledge of the repercussion that evil can give. The devil still uses this same deceptive practice today. He leads people to believe that he is offering something superior to what God has given only for people to find out that it is never as good as what God has provided. So a few things there about the establishment of duty and the responsibility of man. Next week we're going to look at the establishment of marriage. If you want to write it in your notes right there, uh, we have the establishment of marriage. Uh, then that is one man, one woman, and one flesh. And we will be looking at that uh, next week uh, in much more detail, the marriage, what God established when he established marriage there in the end of chapter number two. Hope that you enjoy in this study in Genesis. I know that I am definitely enjoying it. And I just wish that I could share with you everything that I read in preparing these lessons. I just don't can't, can't get it all in. But you can tell I keep stretching them out, trying to get more and more of it to you. But uh, hope that you all enjoy these. Hope that you're learning from it and that the Lord is blessing you.